The KSTE Farm Hour, brought to you in part by Mavento Insecticide from Bayer. Welcome to the KSTE Farm Hour. Here's KSTE's farmer Fred, Fred Hoffman. It's a bittersweet time for one local ag commodity that's been hit hard. The annual Stockton Asparagus Festival is happening this weekend, but how many more years can it exist with the steep decline in Delta area asparagus production? Why has this popular vegetable fallen on hard times locally? We have that report. As if our fragile waterway systems in the Sacramento-San Joaquin Delta didn't have enough problems, a nutria, a 20-pound levy-devouring swamp rodent, has been found in the area west of Stockton. We have an update on the northward spread of this dangerous pest. What are the chances for a U.S. return to membership in the Trans-Pacific Partnership, a vital component for California's agricultural export industry? All that, crop reports, and a lot more on this week's KSTE Farm Hour. Let's get started. The Asparagus Festival is being held this weekend in Stockton, but is this the swan song for a commodity that's in a steep decline here? The Stockton Record reported that from 1997 through 2015, the amount of acreage planted in asparagus declined 88% from just over 24,000 acres to less than 3,000. Why is that? Well, long-term trade agreements that favor asparagus grown in foreign lands combined with more recent tightening regulations at home have farmers convinced that Delta asparagus may soon go virtually extinct. One farmer whose family used to farm 6,000 acres of asparagus in San Joaquin County is now down to zero. And he told the Stockton Record that people speak with their pocketbooks. When they see imported asparagus for sale for $1.99 at the supermarket, that's a couple of dollars a pound below what it costs us to grow it. There hasn't been a profit to be made in asparagus for a long time, he told the record. That decline began back in 1994 with the North America Free Trade Agreement. That eventually phased out a 25% tariff on asparagus imported from Mexico. That made foreign asparagus cheaper for U.S. supermarket chains and other buyers. Meanwhile, costs for California's asparagus growers climbed higher due to minimum wage laws and stricter food handling requirements. Plus, the state legislature's expansion of farm worker overtime will add another set of new costs next year. It is, after all, a labor-intensive crop that must be cut by hand. For the few local asparagus growers who are hanging on, they still hope to provide the crop on a much smaller scale for farmers markets, as well as small mom-and-pop businesses that are willing to pay the higher price. And on a rather bittersweet note, the article in the Stockton Record about the end of Delta Asparagus was recently awarded first prize by the California Newspaper Publishers Association for agricultural reporting. For clarification, the U.S. is not involved in, nor has not been asked to return to, the trade deal formally called the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Yet if President Donald Trump's comments back in February, If we did a substantially better deal, I would be open to TPP. And reports that the president has instructed top administration trade and economic officials provide any indication there may be a possibility that the U.S. could be seeking to rejoin what is now the Comprehensive and Progressive Agreement for Trans-Pacific Partnership, the name given by the remaining 11 member nations after signing the agreement earlier this year. The ag sector was among the biggest supporters of TPP. For the market access, their products were set to receive into parts of Asia, Oceania, and the Americas. 
business. And as the president of the National Council of Farmer Cooperatives, Chuck Connor explains, agriculture's hope in a potential TPP reconnection comes at a time of low commodity prices and possible Chinese trade tariffs for their exports, among other challenges. Agriculture's business plan doesn't have as many facets to it as perhaps other industries. Our sole business plan for the future of American agriculture is expanded trade. Yet what might the president's words of substantially better deal mean in the context of a potential TPP reentry? National Farmers Union President Roger Johnson believes and emphasizes that the president's issues with TPP when the U.S. withdrew in early 2017 and even now are not connected with agriculture. You need to step way back if you're president and think about what's the big picture. And the big picture is that the trade deficit, in his view, is killing our economy. And so he probably wants in TPP something dealing with currency manipulation, some methodology for trying to bring some balance to trade. Ag supporters and stakeholders such as Minnesota dairy producer Mitch Davis say U.S. farm and food exports, which carries a surplus in the trade ledger, can and does contribute in the overall balance. In TPP and any other trade arrangements, ag's the opportunity to correct the deficit, to help correct some of these other problems. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. Despite all the rain and snow in March, water supplies for Central Valley farmers may not change much. Representatives of federal and state water systems spoke to the State Board of Food and Agriculture recently. Most farmers on both systems have been told to expect about 20 percent of contract water supplies. The state water project may increase its allocation slightly. But operators of the Federal Central Valley Project said they're analyzing data to see if it's going to follow suit. Agriculture is caught in the crosshairs as the U.S. and China announce back-and-forth tariff proposals. Farmers are poised to take the brunt of the tariffs from China if all are imposed, as commodities including soybeans, cotton, and beef are on China's most recent tariff target list. However, a common period is open, and Cody Lyon, Managing Director of Advocacy and Political Affairs for the American Farm Bureau Federation, says farmers need to share their concerns now. Farmers and ranchers depend on free trade for a living. In many areas of the country, farmers and ranchers are very concerned about the retaliation resulting from the announced tariffs. Farmers and ranchers need to comment on the need to oppose higher tariffs. Between now and May 11th, farmers and ranchers can send that message to the U.S. Trade Representative. And after May 11th, the U.S. Trade Representative will have 180 days to make a final decision. China continues to add more agricultural products to its target list, which includes beef, cotton, pork, nuts, and soybeans, to receive tariffs up to 25 percent. Soybeans and cotton are our top two ag exports to China. After Canada, China is our second largest customer for ag exports, and it's very important that that market remains open. Nothing will make up for the long-term loss of global markets should these tariffs be put in place, and farmers and ranchers would much rather earn their income from the international marketplace, which is why we need to have these barriers removed. Comments are being accepted through May 11th, and Farm Bureau has made it easy for farmers to submit their comments. We know that free trade gives America's farmers and ranchers an edge in the global economy, and we're asking farmers and ranchers from around the country to submit comments to the USTR at fbadvocacy.org. Again, that is www.fbadvocacy.org. Michael Clements, Washington. USDA meteorologist Brad Rippey has the latest on the situation with the rice crop. We did have some early planting progress in the western Gulf Coast region, so for that reason, Louisiana and Texas still slightly ahead of their normal planting pace 
87 and 70 percent complete in those two states. He says cooler and wetter weather has hindered planting in the Delta. We do see uh, fairly appreciable delays starting to show up. The number one production state, Arkansas, 27 percent planted, 33 percent is the five-year average. And last year at this time, 61 percent of the Arkansas rice crop was already in the ground. He also has figures for rice emergence. Slow in the late planted areas, but pretty much on pace or ahead of schedule in the western Gulf Coast region. That brings it to a national number of 15% emergence. That's equal to the five-year average, but behind last year's 23%. This is Stephanie Ho for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. Here's this week's California crop report. The warm temperatures and recent precipitation helped winter forage crops mature. Alfalfa cutting began in the Central Valley. Cotton field preparation and planting is ongoing. Cornfields were prepped and planted as weather and soil conditions allow. Ground preparation continues for spring forage. The rice fields were being prepared for planting. Vineyards are leafing out somewhere in the early stages of flowering. Stone fruit orchards continue to leaf out as the bloom period comes to a close. New orchards are being planted. Cherries were sizing up. Some were beginning to show color. Pomegranates and persimmons continue to leaf out. Petal fall is occurring in some citrus groves. The harvest of late variety navel oranges continues. Fruit was showing some grading issues. Citrus packing houses are starting to pack Valencia oranges. Seedless mandarin groves remain netted for the bloom. Lemons continue to be harvested and packed for the domestic market. Some citrus trees are being planted. Walnuts and pistachios bloomed and some orchards were pruned. The season's almonds were developing nicely. A good set was reported for almonds in many orchards in the San Joaquin Valley. Pistachio leaf out is beginning. Catkins were developing on the Chandler walnuts. In the vegetable fields, artichokes are being harvested in San Mateo County. Parsley, spinach, fennel, and radocchio continue to grow well in Fresno, with fields being prepped for fresh market tomatoes, carrots, and bell peppers. The blueberry bloom is finished and the fields were being treated for weeds. A freeze damaged strawberries in Fresno County, but regrowth has been good. Strawberries continue to be planted in Tulare County and summer vegetable fields were prepped for planting. Carrots continue to be harvested in Imperial County. Rangeland and non-irrigated pasture quality continues to improve with the spring rains. Sheep are grazing on retired cropland. Some beehives were stacked and moved to citrus and plum orchards. Out-of-state hives brought in for the almond bloom are beginning to be moved out of California. Some hives were moved into alfalfa to build up colony numbers. Branding of spring calves is reported in Fresno County. Take the KSTE Farm Hour with you wherever you go. It's available at KSTE.com or the iHeartRadio app in streaming mode, or you can download it from your favorite third-party podcast aggregator, such as iTunes. Did you forget about the freeze back in February? Almond growers haven't. One farmer says he has his fingers crossed as he monitors his Sacramento Valley almond orchards. The extent of damage from that February freeze remains uncertain. Farmers and ag commissioners say the effect appears to vary greatly. It really depends on location, tree variety, and other variables. In some cases, farmers may not know the full impact until close to harvest time. 
The first government estimate of almond crop will be released in May. This time of year, you would not expect much change in USDA's forecast for the orange crop, and expectations are met in this week's report. The Florida all-orange crop forecast, 45 million boxes, same as last month's forecast, but, of course, USDA Florida State statistician Mark Hudson says... Compared to last year, all oranges is down 35%, and two years ago, down 45%. Blame Greening and Hurricane Irma for some of that. Meanwhile, the California all-orange forecast also, same as last month, 44.5 million boxes. That would be down 8% from last season. And we have a Texas orange crop forecast now. That crop did change quite a bit from the previous forecast. USDA looking at a Texas crop 2.1 million boxes, up 15% from the last estimate, up 54% from last season. Put it all together, you get a forecast for the U.S. at 3.9 million tons, just slightly more than last month's estimate, but down 23% from last season. Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture, Washington. Americans are eating more strawberries than ever, that according to new figures from the U.S. Department of Agriculture. The USDA reports that Americans ate about 10 pounds of strawberries per person last year. That's a record. About 80% of those were fresh strawberries. The rest were frozen. California farms produce more than 75% of U.S. grown strawberries, and the harvest will intensify through the spring and summer. Consolidation. What exactly does that term mean if you happen to be involved in farming, ranching, or agribusiness? Or for that matter, if you are a consumer of anything grown or raised in agriculture? It has broad connotations, yes. One perspective comes from Jim Collins of Dow DuPont, one of many companies either recently involved or undergoing consolidations and merger. Even as global consumption and production continue to reach record highs, nearly flat prices are forcing farmers to find ways to increasingly become more efficient and more productive. Or economists like USDA's Jim McDonald studying consolidation trends at the farm level. We see that fairly steady shift towards greater specialization at the same time that we're seeing some consolidation towards larger farms. I'm Rod Bain, and a look at the wide-ranging definitions and potential implications of consolidation is the subject of this edition of Agriculture USA. So what has driven the trends of consolidation in the ag sector, first on the farm the past three decades, more recently in agribusiness? Jim Collins of Dow DuPont says one significant factor has been consumers. Some surveys, nearly 90% of consumers across demographics say they want to eat food that supports wellness and they're willing to pay more for these products. And consumers say they're also making decisions based on value-driven concerns. These trends are increasingly driving food chain decisions. And while consumers have access to more information about their food than ever before, they often lack the knowledge about the economics of food production. Collins says now add growing and vocal demands via sources like social media, especially in influencing public policy related to food and food production. So as a result, expectations continue to rise for us to employ sustainable production methods, to reduce our environmental footprint, and be increasingly transparent about food production methods and our supply chains. These trends not only affect packaged foods, but affect farm outputs as well. All this coming at a time when challenges like pest, climate, low commodity prices, and feeding a growing global population impact all of agriculture. The response in several ways, according to Collins, is consolidation. 
He represents one of several new or potentially new companies formed in the wake of mergers and consolidations. The bottom line here is that scale supports innovation and innovation is going to allow us to help our customers increase yield to meet that growing demand that we know is out there, but doing it much more sustainably and more responsibly. It also means potential opportunity for these consolidated businesses to better understand what grocery store shoppers and restaurant goers want. We can help our grower customers, the grower community, adapt and thrive. As ag companies, we need to ask ourselves what role we can play in helping consumers understand food production and separate the fact from the fiction. Especially in the education of consumers about the economics of agriculture and food production. It has been economy of scale that has played a role in the trend of consolidation among farms and livestock operations since the mid-1980s. As Agriculture Department economic researcher Jim McDonald notes from a recent study on farm-level consolidation trends. We find that consolidation has been large, it's been widespread, and it's been persistent. Widespread in that it covers almost all crops. We don't actually see big differences between specialty crops and field crops. We see a steady, large shift towards larger farms in those areas. And persistent in that consolidation of farms into larger operations coincides with steady increases in crop production over a three-decade period. One point McDonald makes is even with these consolidation trends. Family farms absolutely dominate field crop production in the United States, 95% of acreage. Where non-family farms are important is in specialty crop production, fruits and vegetables, and large diversified corporations play an important guidance role in livestock. Meeting firms own some farm operations and guide or contract livestock and poultry production. But I should say, on the whole, we don't see any shift of production towards corporate operations. Again, most of the shift is to larger family farms. McDonald adds that while farm-level consolidation has slowed over the past decade... Our estimates of farm profits indicate that the largest farms still have a much stronger financial performance than farms in mid-sized and smaller categories, and so there is still very strong financial incentives towards continued consolidation. This has been Agriculture USA. I'm Rod Bade reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. The University of California is hosting two two-day workshops in May designed for landowners and land managers wanting to gain skills in prescribed fire planning and implementation. May 14th and 15th, it'll be held at the UC Berkeley's Blodgett Research Forest in Georgetown. And on May 16th and 17th, it'll be held at the UC Sierra Foothills Research and Extension Center in Browns Valley. Each workshop will feature similar content. However, the first workshop will be held in a forested setting featuring prescribed fire in forested areas, and the second in a rangeland setting featuring prescribed fires in rangeland. For more information on those two workshops, you can call 530-542-2571 or do an internet search on the phrase prescribed fire on private lands workshop. Ag Secretary Sonny Perdue had a message for students at Lincoln Memorial University's College of Veterinary Medicine. I didn't tell the dean this, but I'm coming on a recruiting mission. We need a lot of veterinarians every year in, uh, in USDA. 
And so I want you to look at public service. Secretary Perdue is the first veterinarian to head the U.S. Department of Agriculture, which is why he places such high value on the profession. At the same time, he said he hopes some of the vet students will consider staying in their Appalachian Mountain community after they graduate. People, you can get them from Knoxville or Nashville or, or Atlanta or wherever, and you can recruit them there for a while, but then either they get unhappy or mama gets unhappy or daddy gets unhappy and, and they don't stay very long. I believe in, in getting indigenous students. That's what I hear we have here. He says students who are locals are more likely to love the area. This is Stephanie Ho for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. The Sacramento Bee reports that a nutria, that's a 20-pound swamp rodent, was killed on agricultural land west of Stockton in San Joaquin County recently. It's the farthest north the species has been confirmed of the 32 nutria killed so far in California since their discovery in March of 2017. The confirmed kill puts the South American rodent on the edge of the Sacramento-San Joaquin Delta. Nutria aggressively feed on native wetland vegetation and their burrowing into levees poses a grave risk to the state's water supply as well as the flood control infrastructure. Last February, we talked about the nutrient's potential impact on California agriculture with Valerie Cook-Fletcher. She's a senior environmental scientist of the Invasive Species Program at the California Department of Fish and Wildlife. She talked about the history of the swamp rodent in California. So they're native to southern South America. Um, but they were originally introduced in um, in the U.S. for their fur. So there was a fur trade back in the 30s and 40s. Um, and, you know, they were introduced in California and, and released and persisted for some time before they were eradicated in the 60s. Um, there's, there are still populations that are um, present and, and doing extensive damage in other states, such as Louisiana and um, the Chesapeake Bay area and also Oregon and Washington. You know, in California, we have some some speculations about um, whether they were intentionally reintroduced. But you know, at at this point, we're not exactly clear on um, on their method for for this reappearance. And to be clear, it's illegal to bring them into California, correct? Absolutely, yeah. They are a restricted species, so um, the Department of Fish and Wildlife has them listed as a restricted live animal. And then um, the Department of Food and Agriculture also has them listed as an A-rated pest um, that warrants um, quarantine and um, control restricted by multiple agencies. Yeah, besides the uh, burrowing nature of this creature, which can certainly undermine fragile levee systems, it also harbors diseases like tuberculosis that could spread to uh, humans and animals, doesn't it? Correct. Um, as well as like septicemia and blood and liver flukes. Um, you know, there are a number of different diseases and parasites that, that they can transmit to, to humans, pets, and livestock as well. So not good news for water supply systems. And it is a prolific breeder, I understand. Something like, uh, what, 200 babies a year? Um, there's been some misinterpretation of that information. From the time a female becomes reproductively mature, which um, is as early as four to six months of age, um, she can result in over 200 additional nutria. So that is her reproductive output as well as her first litter's reproductive output. You know, these things become reproductive by four to six months of age, and um, they can 
produce three litters per year and then turn around and breed back, you know, within two days of having a litter. So um, with as many as 13 young per litter, that adds up very, very quickly. And then those uh, youngsters can spread out for what, 50 miles or so? Yes, um, up to 50 miles. And nutria are, um, they're not territorial animals. They they live in social groups and family groups. So there's typically like a dominant male and several mature females that are reproductive and some juveniles. But um, juvenile males, as they begin to, to age and reach reproductive maturity, they're driven out from the family group by the dominant male. So those males we see dispersal up to 50 miles. Um, and, and some dispersal of females as well. But so not only does their population size grow very rapidly, their geographic extent can also grow very rapidly. So where have you found them in California and in what sort of environments are you finding them? Um, we have found them in wetlands, uh, managed wetlands in Merced County. Um, they've been confirmed on San Luis National Wildlife Refuge um, in private ponds near the Merced River, um, on additional managed wetlands in Stanislaus County, in an irrigation canal um, out on Water District property near other managed wetlands in Fresno County. And then they were also recently confirmed um, on private property up in Tuolumne County. And what were the telltale signs that indicated that there were nutrients present? Initial find um, in March of 2017, uh, there was some damage being done in managed wetland pond areas that they um, initially just attributed to beaver. So they had a trapper come out looking for beaver, um, and that's when they just incidentally found this female. Um, but typically what we see and what we're looking for is um, a lot of damaged emergent vegetation. So typically there are floating cuttings. So tules and cattails, um, they really go for the basal portions of plants. They like to eat the, the tubers and the roots, so they, they sort of rip it up out of the soil, and then they eat the basal portions and leave a whole lot of cuttings um, just floating in the water. So you, you end up with um, very large areas of just cleared vegetation with quite a bit of cuttings just floating or piled up to create feeding and grooming platforms. And seeing how they weigh 15 to 20 pounds uh, on average, I was amazed to learn they can consume up to 25% of their body weight each day. Yeah, yeah. It adds up very quickly and does a lot of damage to um, you know the plant community itself, but also um, there's a lot of soil erosion. And um, eventually, you know, large populations can convert those, those wetland and marsh habitats just to open water um, and mudflats and coastal areas. And the reason for the great concern by the California Department of Fish and Wildlife have to do with the fact that this burrowing creature can really do some serious damage to our fragile levee systems, especially all those privately managed levees around farmland. Sure. And, you know, we've talked about how they live in these large um, family and social groups. And, you know, they don't build lodges. They burrow in. And, and that's, you know, sort of their, their escape habitat. And so when you have these large family groups burrowing in um, to levees and banks, you know, they can they can burrow in up to six meters deep, but up to 50 meters in. Um, they build multi-level um, burrows. And so, you know, as, as population sizes and densities build up, that that's going to have some serious implications for California's water conveyance system 
um, you know, for for water movement, but also for um, irrigation, for agriculture um, and water supply systems as well. The soil left on top of the mound, is there a, a signature for the uh, nutria, much like uh, the gopher or a mole would have? Well, so they don't burrow um, vertically like those animals do. They typically look for um, very steep banks, so they burrow in horizontally. So much like you would look for like a, a muskrat burrow, they're quite a bit bigger. Um, but, you know, I wouldn't say that there are distinguishing characteristics other than um, just a very large burrow into um, the side of fairly steep banks. So for landowners who live near levees or uh, maybe farmers who have property with wetlands that they're managing, would these burrows on a levee be towards the bottom on the dry side or on the wet side of the levee, if you will? They would be on the wet side. Um, and typically, at least, you know, we're still learning here in California and, and making observations, but what we have learned based on information in other states is that typically the openings to those burrows are below the water line. And so um, as water levels change, it may reveal those openings, but they're not always apparent unless you wind up with a levee breach or, or water loss or other damages. So, um, you know, typically what we look for is those telltale signs are those floating cuttings that we talked about because, you know, these are herbivores that they stay in the vicinity of, of a reliable food source. And so those, you know, with the, the vast amount of vegetation that they eat every day, they, you know, they eat quite a bit, but they waste up to 10 times that much every day. So it's, it's very apparent when they're, they're present based on the wasteful feeding behavior and, and the vegetation that they leave behind. In order that people don't confuse the nutria with the beaver or the muskrat, what are some identifying features of a nutria? So identification can be difficult when we look at um, overlapping size classes. So small beavers and large nutria have an overlap and juvenile nutria and large muskrats have an overlap. But um, you know, they're very difficult to tell apart unless you're very close to the animal itself, which is, you know, why we, a lot of the reports we've had of Nutria recently have, have turned out to be muskrats. So if you're close enough to be able to see or you have reliable photographs, um, the, the key distinguishing characteristic is the white whiskers. So Nutria and muskrats can both have white muzzles, but they have different colored whiskers. Um, so the nutria have white whiskers and muskrats, as well as beaver, have dark, um, almost black whiskers. Some other distinguishing characteristics, the beavers have that characteristic wide, flat paddle tail. Nutria have long, slender, um, pretty much hairless, round tails. Muskrats have, have that same long, slender, hairless tail that's sort of um, compressed from side to side. And so in cross-section, it's almost almost kind of triangular, but it's very difficult to see that unless you're up close. One of the other characteristic things that we look for is um, there are some differences in swimming behavior. So um, if you see an animal in the water, um, muskrats use their tail um, to help propel them while swimming. So there's a serpentine movement where their tail is sort of, you know, that S-shaped side to side to help them propel through the water. Whereas with nutria, the tail just kind of drags behind, it just trails behind. And I guess that might be a sign, too, if you see tracks in the ground, that tail drag from its foot-long tail. Sure, yeah. The the tracks are often accompanied by a, a tail drag. 
the muskrats do not have webbed hind feet, whereas nutria do, as do beaver. Um, However, beavers' back feet, all of their toes are webbed, but with the nutria, um, their back toes are webbed with the exception of the one outer toe. So they they have one outer toe that's free from webbing. And so Sometimes that's present um, or, or visible in tracks, depending on the quality of the of the track itself. But that's that's characteristic. If you can see webbing and a and a slender um, tail drag, that's what we're looking for. So let's say somebody spots a nutria, they've identified it. What steps do they take next? They need to immediately report it to the Department of Fish and Wildlife or their local county ag commissioner. Um, if they're on federal or state property, such as a a state wildlife area or a national wildlife refuge, then they should immediately report it to their local staff. But um, either to the Department of Fish and Wildlife or the County Act Commissioner if they're on any other properties. And the number for uh, CDFW, I believe, is 866-440-9530. Yeah, that's to our um, invasive species hotline number, um, or there's additional information on our website for online reporting there as well wildlife.ca.gov correct it's it's the nutria a giant invasive swamp rodent known for destroying wetland habitats and damaging levees and it's being found on sacramento's doorstep if you are surrounded by levees or streams lakes ponds be looking for the nutria Valerie Cook-Fletcher, Senior Environmental Scientist of the Invasive Species Program with the California Department of Fish and Wildlife. Thanks for a few minutes of your time. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. The House Agricultural Committee is working on a new farm bill, and California's farmers and ranchers are monitoring how the bill will affect key conservation, research, and other programs. Congress plans to update current federal farm and nutrition policies that expire at the end of September. The California Farm Bureau says the bill has widespread effects on food production, stewardship, and jobs in both rural and urban areas. For example, the California Farm Bureau Federation says farmers throughout the state are struggling to hire enough people to harvest crops, and they're seeking increased research into technology in order to mechanize farming tasks. Discussions of Farm Bill issues will likely continue, though, for the next several months. The No Taste for Waste campaign by the American Farm Bureau Federation and other partners in agriculture connects consumers with farmers who use sustainable practices and aims to reduce food waste at the table and on the farm. Farm Bureau member April Clayton grows organic apples and cherries in Washington State with her husband. Clayton says the No Taste for Waste campaign addresses a critical topic. With Americans throwing away 25% of their food and the number of farmers decreasing and an increasing population, food waste is a more important topic than ever. Households are responsible for the largest portion of all food waste. For consumers, she says there is one step they can take to help significantly reduce waste. Buy ugly fruit. My husband and I, we like to joke that we grow diamonds because only the most beautiful fruit that doesn't have scraps, stings, or bruises on them tend to make it to the fresh market where they fetch a higher price. If Americans were more willing to buy fruit that wasn't as beautiful, that would help reduce waste dramatically. New technologies and practices allow Clayton and her husband to reduce waste and grow a more sustainable product. Instead of 
growing the tree with four branches. We're just growing a branch straight up. This allows us to plant trees closer together. We can prune them thinner to allow for more light to come through. This will help reduce the number of uglies that we see in the field. It's less days and we get a bigger crop quicker. We also use less water. Learn more at notasteforwaste.org. Michael Clements, Washington. Ooh, it was a creepy 1986 movie with creepy Dennis Hopper. It was called... Velvet. Yes, the opening shows everything in the neighborhood just perfect, bright, happy, but the camera takes you down underneath the lawns into the ground where you see all the dirty stuff, the worms and the troubles and such. Well, now we're going to take a look at the nation's flourishing restaurant industry. Now, just listen to these stats. In just the last 10 years, the number of food and drink places in this country has grown by 50%. Consumers are spending more of their income with these places. The average sales for each place has recently broken the $1 million mark. So, wow, it sounds great, but just like in the movie... Underneath all this, there's some challenges and and headwinds. That's Bill Lapp. He's an analyst. He consults with the food service industry. We heard his talk at a recent agriculture department conference, and we also talked with him afterwards. So, what headwinds? We'll take a look on this edition of Agriculture USA. I'm Gary Crawford. We're going out to eat now, but I don't know where. Let's go to a restaurant. I'm hungry as a bear. Well, yes, people must be hungry if the average yearly sales for each restaurant is now a million dollars. But Bill Lapp says that's a little misleading. We're increasing the amount on each check while traffic is declining. Partly because in the last four years, eating out costs have climbed 13 percent. The cost of food at the grocery stores only increased about 2 percent. And we talked with Agriculture Department food price analyst Anne-Marie Coons. She told us some, but not all, of the rising costs of restaurant foods are because of a shift by some outlets in the foods they are offering. So a lot of restaurants have been moving toward more organic foods, um, more locally sourced meats. You're seeing a lot of farm-to-table restaurants. Those sorts of foods are more expensive. But even a normal increase in what the restaurant has to pay for regular food items can be a problem because... Restaurants have little ability to pass on the increased costs. Because they are competing with all the other restaurants on price. Now about 20 to 35 percent of your typical restaurant tab and the operating cost of the restaurant is for food. Bill Lapp says the other major cost for the restaurant is labor. Those costs are also rising for restaurants. They're going to have to try to deliver the same quality and the same good experience with reduced amount of labor employed. And Lapp added this for his conference audience. We'll see more places with kiosks so that... You can order without actually interacting with a human being. <laughs> which some people might like, especially if you have smart Alex servers. What can we do for you, sir? Have you a wild duck? No, but we could take a tame one out and aggravate it for you. <laughs> or <laughs> reverse that idea. Is that steak New York cut? Servers having to deal with crabby customers. You're always squawking about something. If it isn't a steak, it's something else. I didn't squawk about the steak there. I merely said I didn't see that old horse that used to be tethered outside here. <laughs> oh, no, he's still there for now, anyway. But let's get back to the meat of the matter, or maybe you don't eat meat and you don't like this or that, which brings us to another little problem for eateries. In the days of yore, there might have been restaurants like the one described in this classic Arlo Guthrie song. You can get anything you want at Alice's Restaurant. Ah, but today it may not be possible for a restaurant to give us everything we want because the restaurant can't figure out what we want. Maybe we don't even know what we want. It seems harder today 
than at any time in the past to really identify what consumers want or what the new trend is. This is particularly true of your national chains. They not only are having to compete amongst themselves. But then they have to compete with uh, the independents, which have proliferated over the last 10 years with a strong economy and cheap interest rates. Bill Lapp says that's why we see so many established chains, fast food and otherwise, constantly inventing new menu items, throwing others out. They have to keep trying new things. They've got to be pretty dynamic and they can't look stale. So, you know, McDonald's has made some huge changes in saying we're going to be fresh and in terms of offering breakfast all day long. And even trying to respond to consumer concerns about livestock, animal welfare, and so-called natural raw products, trying to latch onto some kind of trend. Bill Lapp says it used to be fairly easy. Now it's very hard to know what people want. Do they want local? Do they want comfort food, natural, non-GMO, organic? And while restaurants try to figure that out, they're trying to find their niche and satisfy their customers' desires somehow. Because population is so diverse, restaurants just cannot make the claim these days that that famed restaurant in the song was able to make. You can get anything you want at Alice's Restaurant. And that's our Agriculture USA. At Alice's Restaurant. I'm Gary Crawford reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture, Washington. When farm workers harvest table grapes in California's Central Valley in 109-degree August weather, part of the job involves repeatedly wheeling about 80 pounds of grapes hundreds of feet down a long row of grapevines. Well, there's a new robot designed to do that job instead, leaving workers free to spend more time picking grapes. The Fast Company website reports that Aegean Robotics, an East Coast startup company, developed the robot. For farmers struggling to find enough labor to pick crops, a problem that has grown in the current state of immigration politics, the robot can make the labor more productive. For workers, the robot could make a difficult job slightly less painful and help them earn more money. The electrically powered robot, called the Burrow, is designed to either follow a farm worker around a farm or run loops down rows of grapes or berries. In the follow mode, it uses an algorithm to recognize a worker. It's been described as a robot that locks onto you and then follows you like a dog. Today, only a tiny fraction of farms use robots. Most are dairies, which robotically milk cows. But a growing number of startups are trying to automate the harvest of produce. There's half a dozen startups that are working on robots designed to pick strawberries without human help. In 2017, Google Ventures led a $10 million round of investment in a startup that makes a robot for picking apples. Burrow is designed to work with farm workers rather than instantly replace them. And it may also come to the market sooner than the other robots. Thanks for listening to the KSTE Farm Hour. Heard every Sunday from noon until 1 p.m. Pacific Time and available anytime as a podcast. Download it at KSTE.com.